Hey, everybody. How's it going? My name is Rob Turley, your host at Down the Rabbit Hole Podcast. Fantastic to have everybody here. I know it's been a little while since the last podcast released, but I get busy sometimes. Very, very busy. It's been nuts. But today, I have a very, very special guest. His name is Mark Allen Roberts. He's an incredible guy. He is a sales sage, if you will. Um, and he's done some incredible things throughout his career that, uh, I mean, I can't attest to half of it, right? Because what you've done is incredible so far. Please tell us a little bit about yourself. I'm sure everybody would love to hear it. Thanks, Rob. I've been in sales and marketing about 36 years, a little bit more. And what I help people do is just grow their business profitably. It's not that fancy, um, but I've kind of figured out a model over the years that once we employ the model, uh, very quickly, we can get sales turned around and improve profits. And I've been very blessed. I've worked with some great CEOs in a lot of different industries. And typically, I fall in the uh, manufacturing, distribution, sometimes um, finance, but most of the time, manufacturing and distribution. Right. And so with manufacturing and distribution, since that is a very interesting industry and it will always be booming because people always buy products. People always need products. They need to build things. They needed to engage with things. They needed to do things. They needed to entertain themselves, all of that. What type of manufacturing have you been in? Because a lot of people don't really know about that landscape and how much it actually drills directly into everything else that we do. Well, that's a good point. It drills into everything. I mean, I once had somebody say, okay, look around this room. Everything in this room a manufacturer made. I've been in plastics. I spent a lot of time in plastics. One of my largest accounts today is in plastics. They, they in, uh, manufacture injection molding machines, but I've been in metals, um, bent tube and pipe, um, serving all kinds of like engine manufacturers, um, custom engineered products, uh, machine shops, um, you name it pretty much, um, building materials. We're talking roofing, wood, lumber, all different types of wood flooring, ceramic tile. So again, you name it, I've pretty much touched it at one point or another. Right, right. And it's funny, the injection molding manufacturer is creating things for other manufacturers to use to manufacture things using injection molding. It's kind of funny. Absolutely. It's layer after layer after layer. So with your experience of working with all of those uh, manufacturers, production uh, production companies, distributors, and all of that. What has that taught you and how does that relate to pretty much the everyday business, even in like software? How do, what have you learned from that that applies to all business? Well, what I like about it is manufacturing, you know, is kind of like what I call the heartbeat of America. I mean, it's, it's strong, ethical companies, great teams, hardworking, um, you know, creative problem solvers, um, you know, it's, it's been a real blessing for me to work with them and understand, you know, what it takes to identify market problems and turn them into products that ultimately ship out the back door. Right. And what skills have, did you develop that you can, um, well, that you have brought to sales teams around the world from doing this process? What does that look like? What skills, um, what criteria, what systems were you able to put in place that applied to the businesses that you've worked with? Yeah, the plastics guy actually taught me the most. I was with them for 13 years. I was their um, national uh, sales director, VP of sales and marketing, but also I was responsible for global sales. And the way we consistently grew 20% or more year over year for 13 years 
um, was we went out and just had really good conversations with customers. While my sales guys were selling, I was asking questions. What's a challenge today? What's driving you crazy? What new change occurred that is disrupting your business? And if you get people talking, they will share their pain. And once you understand their pain points, um, you develop products that completely solve their solutions. Um, pretty much everybody that's listening to this at one point probably touched one of our products in the plastics company. Back in the day when we used to buy compact discs at retail and they were in a piece of plastic so you couldn't steal it, that was us. Right. We, made, we had 98% market share. And the way we grew to 98% market share was not just selling a piece of plastic, but understanding the problem that it solved. What is the purpose that plastic exists for? That's the thing. Well, what it's, I mean, it, it's interesting because sometimes it's just to help CDs be merchandised in a bin that used to be for record albums. Sometimes it's to prevent theft. Sometimes it's for automation equipment so they can fill a lot of CDs fast. It all depends on the need. And that's where the burden is on the salesperson to not assume, but unpack what it's for and then present a solution. I uh, like how you said asking questions rather than selling. Any right. salesperson that's selling is an order taker. And if they're an order taker and they're trying to acquire a new business, you're not going to sell a damn thing. I call it premature pitching. It drives me nuts. Every night at six o'clock, my phone rings and somebody's trying to sell me a cell service or an internet service. They never even ask me a question. They're just pitching. That's not sales. Yeah. Hey, how's it going? I'm from so-and-so telecom and I can save you 40% on your uh, on your bill. It's like, you don't even know what type of deal I have. You don't even right. know what type of cell phone. I could be your customer and your CRM's wrong, for God's sake. Right. right? I've had that happen. <clears throat> yeah, it's, I've had that happen so many times. It's hilarious. It's always car insurance that does that to me. Um, to update the CRM? No, uh, but you know how it is. Now, moving forward from there, taking those skills, taking that learning the customer, learning the problems, how has that directly affected what buying criteria even means to you? Right. Um, what we're actually doing is gathering requirements. You know, if anybody on the on the call, anybody on the uh, podcast is from the product management discipline. I mean, what it's about is gathering really good requirements, what the client's struggles are, how it impacts their business, ideally how it impacts their bottom line, and then coming back to them solution with solutions and then collaborating. Oh, we didn't get this just right. Okay, well, how would you want it changed? And then when you launch, you're not just throwing something over the fence and hoping it sells. Uh, you've got a market. And if you've done really good market verification prior to launch, uh, the orders start rolling in. But that's where most people fail. Uh, they assume that they had a great conversation with one person. They invent a product to fix a problem but they're not solving a market problem. So that's where the discipline of gathering requirements really comes into play. And again, I was so blessed to learn that early in my career. Uh, that little plastics company, by the way, um, when I joined, they were 4 million. When I left, we sold them for 300 million. Another, yeah, that's, company, that's incredible. another company that makes custom vehicles for people in wheelchairs to be able to drive again. They were stuck at 14 million. When I left, it was 90 million. Did I do it? No, I, I just gathered information and then we trained our salespeople how to speak the language of the customer. Right. And that's one of the hardest things to do is putting yourself in the shoes of the customer. How would they feel? How would you feel? That gets you out of the pitch mode too when you get that mindset in place. 
It's well, so like, tempting to just pitch because it's like, oh, this person is qualified. They, they're going to buy this. I should just give them the product. Here's the product. It's amazing. No. What problem are they trying to solve? If you have not discussed that and you just throw a product in their face, they're going to feel uncomfortable. It's this incredible thing called buyer safety that is constantly ignored. Yeah. They call it buyer safety. I think it falls under the umbrella of psychological safety. But what it is, is when I do win-loss analysis, because part of my practice is we actually do market research for clients. And sometimes they'll ask me to do market um, win-loss analysis. Um, I can't tell you how many times the buyers said, no, 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 it wasn't price. I didn't think the person clearly understood what I needed. So what I ended up doing was I just took the lowest price because none of them seemed to understand what I needed. If you would have been the person that asked the questions, maybe got below the surface of the iceberg and asked really good, insightful questions, you would have had an unfair advantage. They just don't know how. And now that we're dealing with virtual, oh my goodness, uh, talk about a, a, a skills gap. Yeah, that's right. And that is the thing too, is that they're not, ask, they're not asking enough questions or the right questions. And when you're talking about win-loss analysis, so win-loss analysis literally is my life, right? Oh, fun. Yeah. Right. With with artificial intelligence to mathematically determine ideal customer personas. Right. Get it right on the dot. Split it into micro personas, micro targeting, all that fun stuff. Improve your lead gen effectiveness rate by like, you know, 20, 30, 40 X. It's, it's right. pretty incredible what you could do with the proper target. But when you're developing these personas, I mean, do you ever get into the place where you have to approach them and say, listen, you're dead wrong? Oh, quite, quite often, unfortunately, when I deal with CEOs, they'll say, but sales told me I have to lower my price 20%, 30%. But when I do the analysis and when I do the interviews, I'll never forget. I had one CEO on the phone. He was making a product out of different metals. And the customer said, actually, when it comes to price, his price is a steal. Don't tell him, but I probably would have paid more. Yeah. This, that same customer when you look in the CRM, there's an entry that says we need to lower their price 30%. If you need to beg, borrow, or steal, or discount, you are failing as a salesperson because price is not the answer. That's not it. People don't buy based off of price. They, they, they buy based off of an experience that you can deliver. They rent the outcome is what it is. There's such thing as overpriced, where if you're charging 10 right. grand, something that's only ever worth $1,000, people won't buy it. If you made it 4,000, people may buy it if they find enough value in it, even though that's the common price. Price, I look at as a personality. Do you want to be the luxurious elite solution? Do you want to be the mid-market semi-affordable? It's the right choice to make. It's a good choice to make. You know, you have, you, you've made a solid decision or do you want to be the cheap? Anybody can buy it. You need it. You could buy it. It works, but it's not all that great, but it doesn't matter because you need it and you don't have the budget for it. It's, it's a personality choice is all it is. Well, and again, it's, you know, not many of us on this call are selling gumballs, right? Um, right? You know, commodity type products. And the shame is, again, I, I work with sales folks, so I know a lot of data. You know, 50% of salespeople have never been trained. Okay. 70, 70 plus percent of buyers have been trained how to be professional buyers. And less than 15% of salespeople have been trained to negotiate. What is a professional buyer taught in day one? Commoditize the offering. It's not that special. And sales falls into that trap. And very quickly, what could have been a profitable sale, they're leaving money on the table. So and, and it's a mindset thing too. It's psychology. Yes. So the seller feels like their product has been discounted. When I say that, I don't mean cost less money, but it has less value. 
than what the actual value is. The perceived value from the seller lowers, so they lose a lot of the morale and they lose that confidence behind the sale that they will buy it for that cost. So it's not to fall into that. You hold your ground and you never, never justify. You do never justify why your product is important. You oh, never okay. justify why your product is actually valuable because the value is there. You know it's there. You need to hold your ground. I was working with one company and I'm not going to, you know, obviously I've got NDAs, but, you know, they sold products to large automotive manufacturers. And one of the automotive manufacturers was pushing back over about $50. And I just asked him, what's an hour of downtime worth to you? And he, he kind of paused. He says, well, it's $90,000 every 45 minutes. And I just showed you a model where you're not going to need to have downtime for five years. Why are we talking about 50 bucks? It totally changed the conversation. But the shame is in defensive salespeople, they've never been taught how to talk like this. They don't have business acumen. They don't understand how to build a business case in most situations. And they've never been taught how to sell based on value. So what excites me is when we equip salespeople, they can be dangerous. A buddy of mine's an author. His name's Ed Wallace. And he says what people really want is business consultants masquerading as salespeople. Yeah. And yeah. we can we can prepare them to be that. And that's what I mean, any CEO you talk to, what is their job? Well, their job is to solve problems. Yeah. That's it. That's their job. Any VP, their job is to solve problems. If someone in the lower level staff can't solve a problem, it gets sent up. The, the director can't solve the problem, it gets sent up. VP can't solve the problem, it gets sent up. CEO can't solve the problem. You're looking for a damn solution because there's nowhere else to go up. So when they have the conversation or when you have a conversation with someone who's upper level management, you need to help them solve that problem. It's about asking questions and helping them solve a problem. It is not about selling them a solution. It's about helping them solve or solutioning with them. That's the idea. They need someone to talk to, to go back and forth, but to see if there is a viable solution to something that they're dealing with because they have nowhere else to go with it. That's the key thing to remember. I have calls. I mean, I prefer to work with CEOs. Sometimes I work with VPs of sales, but often in the first call, I'm not pitching anything. I just need to understand what's going on because people clearly understand symptoms. They rarely understand the root cause. So when I hear, oh, okay, so you're saying right now sales are down 30%. You're saying it's because of COVID. You're in the metals business. And then I start asking them a ton of questions. And it's not unusual for a CEO to say, you know, that's a great question. I don't have an answer. And I often ask, would you like one? Because again, yeah. with, with market research, assessing the sales team, working with their leaders, talking to their customers, we can get an answer pretty quick. Yeah. It's like when people say the market's not buying. All right. It's not the market. It's you. The market shifted. So right. you need to shift with the market. So it's always the seller's fault. If the market's not buying a product, that means the market shifted and they did not shift with it. They're not proactively looking at that. And who's and after that? Like your, your passion, win-loss analysis. One of my clients made bolts and fasteners, right? And they noticed a pretty significant decrease in sales. So I started listening in on calls with buyers and they were pitching like container load pricing. This is during COVID when cash was king. Every CFO told distributors, we want just-in-time inventory, but they never adapted their messaging. So we went out, we asked a bunch of buyers. Sure enough, we validated what they need is just-in-time inventory to get through COVID. We adjusted the messaging. We changed the website. Within, I want to say, six months after making the adjustments and training the salespeople, 
his biggest challenge became how do I fill third shift with labor? Right. Because the orders were coming. It was just a simple little tweak, but sometimes it's just a matter of listening. And there are so many manufacturing and production and logistics uh, issues at this time because there's just back order for, for weeks, months. My father, he works in automotive, oh, parts and wholesale management, right? So he manages parts and wholesale coming in, coming in from Japan, coming in from different places in the US for Honda. And as that, he serves nearly, I think nearly 1,200, if I have that number correct, he's going to yell at me for not getting it correct if, if I'm wrong. Nearly 1,200 auto body shops and collision shops buy from him. Wow. They call him because he's the guy. So it's the largest parts distribution in New York. And they, they deliver all the way down from upstate. So, so they're in upstate New York, into the city, down in New Jersey, all the way up to Syracuse, New York, and then some out to Ohio. That's nuts for just one place. Absolutely right. crazy. He has nearly, nearly, I think, 2,000 orders on back order right now. And multiple back orders per product where they wouldn't even, they would fill their warehouse like 10 times. And they keep calling, calling, calling. Where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Listen, you will get it when you get it. You'll get it. We won't even call you. It'll just show up. Stop calling. And it's like that because all of the OEM manufacturers went out of business. Right. The smaller guys who make all the smaller parts for the cars and to OEM specification, out of the market. Nobody's making the parts. How are they supposed to get more? There may be right. one or two that are in business. They can't produce it fast enough. And then the logistics issue adds into it. So that created a whole realm of issues and it created a whole demand that nobody ever saw coming. What would be some of the steps that you would have taken to prevent that from happening? Well, first of all, you know, what you're describing is what I call the um, post pandemic bubble. A lot yeah. of people are saying, Mark, I don't need any help with sales. We're rocking it right now. Matter of fact, my biggest challenge is I can't get enough product to ship. Okay. Let me ask How is that not a sales problem? Yeah. Let me, let me let me understand something real quick. Is your success based on your abilities, your efficiency, your effectiveness, the skills of your team or your competitors' inability to ship? Typically crickets. Well, I don't know. Well, as you make your plans for next year, don't you think you need to know? How many of those new accounts that are buying from you, and oh, by the way, a lot of times I'm seeing bad practices where they're actually selling it below margin on very limited supply, which is the opposite of strategic pricing. That's um, the opposite of how supply and demand works and money yeah. velocity. It's the to that's not how the economy works. And it's a, it's a symptom of a sales team that's being paid on revenue and not profit. But what I look at is, let's talk about segmenting your accounts. Who are your A accounts? I have a tool called the whale curve. I work with these data scientists, right? You don't want a sales guy like me doing your data, but I can tell you, you know, 20% of your customers are, your, are generating 150 to 300% of your profits. But 20%, every time Price you ship, is law. Every time you ship, 20% of the people are profit leaking accounts. So if you have limited inventory, why are you letting that limited inventory go to an account that you're not making money at? Matter of fact, you're actually losing money. So one of the first things I do when I work with my distributors and manufacturers is we identify those 20% of customers and we either fix it or we fire the account. Which makes sense. It makes perfect sense. Sorry, the camera went out for a sec there. No, um, and, and again, you asked me, what would I do? Real important is have terms of trade by customer segment. If they're your large A account, it's okay to give them better service 
than somebody that spends $500 with you once every three years. It's okay. It's a mindset challenge. Oh, no. We take pride. We treat everybody the same. Why? Yeah, that's not a sustainable thing. No. In any case whatsoever. I mean, and if again, someone buys something from you once, what, you're going to give them that 30% discount, that buddy-buddy price that you're giving uh, someone who's spending $52 million with you? Why would you do that? Well, and again, working with my analysts, uh, they've taught me a lot. And one of the scary things is when they do that um, uh, analysis on particular products based on price sensitivity. And what we'll often find is their largest accounts are not getting their best pricing. And some little guy, because of a sales person who's never been taught to sell on value, is getting an amazing discount. Talk about a degree of risk. What if your largest account bought that guy? Do you really want to have that conversation on why they're paying 25% less than you? No. So again, you're a data guy, you get it, but everybody tells me this is so hard. There's so much data. Yeah, yeah it is, but you gotta, you gotta address it, right? Yeah, that's why I build artificial intelligence, my company right. does, so that it can assess that on its own because it's way too complicated for us humans or it takes millions, millions of dollars and it takes a shitload of effort and a team of data scientists. A lot of people don't have those resources or it's right. just a nightmare altogether. Why not solve it in a couple minutes? Right. And that's the beauty of what you do is now you're not giving salespeople Excel spreadsheets with, you know, 1400 line items and asking them to be a librarian and figure it out. You're giving them actionable data. Look, this doesn't make sense. Fix it. Yep. That's what salespeople are hungry for. This is where your gaps are in the CRM. This is who you should be targeting. Yep. These are the leads you should be generating, creating a filter before you even uh, acquire or generate the leads so that you're only generating within your TAM and then predictive analytics that can filter that and, and distill that down even further so that they're in your, what I like to call YAM, which I need to trademark, your addressable market, because you can never sell to the whole TAM. You're going to get 25% at best. Who are those 25% that resonate with you, your value prop, and your overall uh, like uh, company and personal values? That's what's important because people buy from the people they like, trust, and can relate to. If that can be measured, which it now can, yes, that's the winning ticket right there. We don't need more leads. We need more quality leads, which means far less of them. Or There's 210 million people in America that are over the age of 18. Your TAM is probably 100,000 of those. Instead of slowly generating all 210 million Americans over a long period of time spending millions of dollars, why not strategically generate that 100,000? and then build relationships, nurture, and actually understand what's going on so you can create those relationships, long-standing business, and just use and redeploy your resources exactly where they need to go so that it is a better experience for everybody. And that's why I originally engaged with you and your firm. What you do used to take me six to eight months in the field doing it. But that is a great we, metric to, for me to know, actually. Thank you. At least we were doing it, but by the time we did it, how many dollars were lost if we would have had a tool, right? Right. So again, you know, it's not about working harder. It's about working smarter. And it drives me crazy when my accounts tell me, oh, my sales guys are so busy. Okay, what are they busy doing? Talk They're busy calling people who don't give a shit, telling them no, and doing research and doing pre-call planning on contacts and individuals that are not actually even fit to speak with them. Why not pre-qualify if you can pre-qualify? And what they consider pre-qualification is, no, it's a SaaS company. Uh, it's in the US and uh, 
Yeah, it's over the size of uh, 250 people and does at least $5 million in revenue. Great. Okay, great. Perfect fit. We could sell them. No. Hey, well, by the way, the guy takes my phone calls. I love that guy. Have you sold him? No. So what, one of my clients, again, everything I do is like industrial products a lot of times. And I started looking through the CRM and I'm like, this is interesting. As an outsider, are you guys aware that when you guys talk to quality, your close rate is about 80%? Yeah. Uh, no, really? I'm like, yeah. So we actually changed, you know, that persona to be quality for that particular uh, product. And we entered new businesses by calling the quality manager. Hey, what kind of struggles are you having with this particular product line? Oh, don't get, even get me started. Well, would you like to work with an ISO company that, you know, da, da, da. all of a sudden that person became our internal champion. We won more new business just by looking and figuring out who's the right person to call that's right and it's often not the the budget holder or the end decision okay. maker which is what we've been trying to prove and it drives us nuts it's hard for people to actually uh digest that where you know we have somebody that we, we work with and after doing our analytics we were saying okay you want to be speaking to the director of it yep why the hell would i speak to them i need to talk to the ceo or i need to talk to the cfo or i need to talk to the cdo those are the people with the decision-making power. That's who we contact because that's where it's going to end. It's like, well, according to us, according to what we can see from the AI, you need to be contacting the IT director, period. That's it. And then they they refuse, refuse, refuse. They did it. Oh, wow. Conversations are happening. They're working their way in, all that good stuff. And then how to multi-thread your way in there too. Also, the compliance manager, really good fit too. That was second in line. When they started doing that, it became easier to get in, easier to close. And they started really being able to do it. So for lack of a better term, finding that champion, right? What we do is predict which individual within a business is most likely to become your champion. That's it. As simple as that. And from an ABM approach, that's great. Because you've seen probably plenty of this in production. All right. Everybody within this company that needs to be procuring this type of uh, stuff, we're going to just send a massive campaign out to everyone within that business. So everybody can be aware of and see that we exist and that we're here. And the person who's the right person, they're just going to reach out to us because everybody's going to love it. No, they're talking internally like, hey, you keep getting emails from this asshole. You keep getting spammed by this guy. Goes, oh, it's the same guy talking internally, brand damage on top of brand damage on top of brand damage. Right. Why do you want brand damage? It's more effective than just randomly picking people and calling them like it used to be. ABM's the next step toward progress. But then after that, it's PBM, people-based marketing the individual person that is going to resonate with the message, not only with the message at a human level, but at a business level and at a pain level. That's the goal is to get there. And so with the, uh, the I'm very interested in what you do because you do what we do except manually. And I'm not sure what that would even entail for you to discover who those champions are. What do you have to go through to even discover that in a manual way? Yeah, like I, right, like I mentioned, I have a three-step process. Number one, I talk to your customers. I interview your customers, and like you know, I think we've discussed on earlier mm -hmm. calls. I had a client recently give me data out of their CRM, and sixty percent of the entries were wrong. Okay, that's a symptom of another problem that we could have trained through. Um, then I work on the assessment of their sales team. Do they have the abilities to execute the strategy you're asking them to do? And if not, let's find the gaps and fill them, right? That's not that hard. Um, should people on your sales team be in sales? Typically, I find 20 to 30% of the sales team shouldn't even be in sales. They don't want to be in sales. And yet you're expecting them to deliver results, right? 
So you know what's funny? I've heard that metric from other people I've interviewed, that exact metric where they shouldn't be in sales, that yeah. same, like 25, 30% from about three global coaches that have trained thousands of salespeople. So they say the same thing. They shouldn't even be in sales. And the thing is, I can show you with the data. It doesn't mean they're bad people. Typically, they're very committed to your organization. They have a high desire and drive. They're just in the wrong role. Yeah. So before you hire more salespeople, what do you say we actually improve the sales team you have, right? Um, but again, the other one that's just staggering, about 60% of once face-to-face -face salespeople can't sell virtually. They're struggling. So what is your plan to help them adjust? And then when I work with sales teams, again, I've got all kinds of data. We can we could speak for hours on the different data that I've discovered over the years. But would you be willing to share? Sure. Oh, I'd love that. That later time though. Later time. Continue. Yeah, that's actually a white paper waiting to happen. Um, but I just did a team recently where 70% of the salespeople were not calling on decision makers. They were calling on buyers. Well, the buyer told us, you know, we had to go through them. Okay, there's a course called getting through the gatekeeper. In this instance, your buyer is the gatekeeper. Yeah. All they their function is to buy, not to decide. Their function, interestingly, is when I ask salespeople, what's a buyer's function? Oh, to beat us up. No, their job is to keep the plant running. So if you become the guy that mitigates risk and they can trust and help you help them, you're their fan. They love you, right? They'll introduce you to people in the plant. People don't understand how powerful relationships are in the procurement market. Huge. There's very few people who are in it. It's a very small group of people and they all know each other. So as soon yes, as you do. wrong or you make a mistake, you are done. That's the danger. But if you can really start networking with them and they get to trust you, they know you, and they start talking about you across lines, across each other, like, oh yeah, no, no, I, I know Mark. No, he's awesome. He's awesome. No, I trust him with my life. No, definitely buy from him because he. it's always on time. It's always quality. It's always when we need it. Um, great guy to talk to. Uh, and you know, it takes care of me. I feel like he really does care. That's going to go a million miles. And there you're in. The gatekeeper should be your best friend, not your enemy. Correct. Because they're the ones who get you the meetings with the decision makers. For example, the secretary sitting in an office at a SaaS firm, at an IT and services firm, at a whoever firm, the person, the assistant, or the, the, uh, the secretary sitting in the front, he or she is your doorway or gateway or bridge, whatever you want to call it, into getting a meeting with any of the executives at that business because she or he is the one that puts you on that calendar in the first place. Well, again, if you're a dick to them, you're never going to get a meeting. True story. 13 years in that plastics business. One of our largest accounts had a great receptionist. I got along with her great. Over the years, we used to joke. We knew about each other's kids, things like that. Six years later, she's an assistant in purchasing. 10 yep. years later, she's running purchasing. Who do you think she met with first? You. And again, don't do it for some selfish reason. Do it for the right reason. Just care about people. Human to human interaction is what it's all about. You talk to buyers right now. I mean, they, they're, they're done with reps, right? Pitching, trying to hit their numbers. I call them commission junkies, right? You can tell on the phone. They're only about themselves. But the thing is, <clears throat> they're quite literally wired like that because if they, they don't are. get that commission goal that they need to, they're not getting the amount of money they need to live properly. Also, if they don't hit that quota, they're going to lose their job. But the quotas are built for a volume 
driven, a high volume driven, sloppy sales process, spray and pray. Yep. When we need to be backing up, we don't need more leads. Again, we need higher quality conversations that lead to relationships. I don't know when the market's going to get this through its thick skull, but it's just more, 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 more. And I don't want to talk shit against these companies because these these uh, uh, platforms can be used for good. But like Outreach.io, it is literally a spam engine. It's an email spam engine. But that's because people are using it that way. It could be used so strategically. Like people use our technology. They can use it so strategically that we've seen in these sequencing uh, applications, some of our clients, they're hitting 57% reply rates. Wow. With automated sequences, for God's sakes. All right. What the hell is that? That's insanity. That's right. the thing. Or auto uh, auto and parallel assisted dialers. We one of, one of our sales outsourcing company partners that we work with, for their clients and for themselves, they're hitting nearly 7.9% effective conversation rate. Wow. That is ungodly. Conver effective conversation rate while cold calling is a tenth of a percent to a uh, half of a percent range is average. The elite cold callers will hit like a one to a one and a half percent. This is outperforming even that high end by what? 4.5 X. Well, and it all starts with making sure you have the right person to call in the first place. Don't just call anybody that'll fog a mirror. Right. And again, you kept saying more leads, right? One of the things that just drives me crazy when I work with teams is I need more leads. And then we do a little bit of analysis. What happened to the 4,000 leads last quarter? Let me just check on it. 70% in one firm were disqualified by the salesperson. They never even picked up the phone. So, okay. There is no evidence or empirical information that means that they are disqualified by any means necessary. They just give up after three to five touches. Up, oh, they didn't pick up the phone. They didn't answer the email after three to five. Uh, yeah, no, they're done. Right now, it's actually higher than this, the new metric. I don't remember the new metric, but last year, approximately 16 touches or greater to get someone's attention for them to respond to you. Now it's somewhere in the 20s or 30s around there. I'd have to look it up again, but it is absurd how many it takes. So if you have 4,000 leads as a salesperson, you're going to keep moving on because you need new ones. You don't know what's going on. If that was filtered down to 200 for you to focus on, keep reaching out to them. Keep reaching out to them. Curate content that is relevant to them. Relevance is everything. Meaningfulness is everything. And that's what people need to get. Just like what you're saying right there. I hope you're alluding to that because that's... Yes. Yeah. And it's, a, it's about understanding their business, right? Um, I have a client out on the West Coast and they sell HR training. I mean, but... Long story short, one of the things they sell is diversity training. There was an article in Wall Street Journal about companies that have diverse boards are X percent more profitable than companies that aren't diverse. Anyways, I grabbed the article, I sent it to them, and they're like, well, what's in it for you? Nothing. We had a conversation. You said a big part of your business was selling diversity training. I thought this would help you guys sell more training. Well, I don't understand. How do you make commission? I don't. I'm here to help yeah. you with what I talked about. But you said you had a problem getting more meetings, talking about diversity training. I just gave you a tool to do it. I hope, you know, I'm in this for the long haul. And that is such a refreshing approach, right? And like you said, you know, 12, 16 messages, 20 messages. But the fun part is if you hang in there, the close rates become exponential if you hang in there. That's right. And that's the thing. And, you know, you can connect with them even if they're not ready yet. I, I, I hate it when people say that, you know what, um, they have a call. Goes great. Super qualified. We're not going to be ready for that in six months. What do they do? Instead of tasking the CRM, they call them six months later. 
Right. What relationship have you built in that time? Nothing. If anything, they don't even know who you are or you feel like you never gave a shit in the first place. You just want the money. You have a hand in their pocketbook, period. Yeah. It feels like you're in it for you, not People them. are always into the, where are the people who are the active buyers right now? They're actively looking. That's the sweet spot. That's where all the shark infested waters are. There's blood, guts, and fins flying all over the place. All the competitors are ravenous trying to rip this guy to pieces, right? That's not where you want to be. It's the passive looking before they're ready to buy in the first place. Absolutely. They're just looking and all that. That gives you the time and the event rather than using time against you. We need to find people ready to buy now. That's throwing darts at a dartboard blindfolded. And it's harder to sell them unless they don't feel like even shopping around. They're just looking for the first damn solution that hits them in the face. The end. You're lucky. Or you have to discount, right? Beg, borrow, steal, whatever you have to do. Cannibalize next quarter. Doesn't matter. Um, so the key is... Build that relationship, nurture them. Don't focus on 3,000 other people because then you are ignoring them blatantly. Don't throw them into an automation sequence. They know it's automated. Yeah. Create that value, talk to them. So identify who and then continuously nurture so that when they get into that active buying cycle, they won't even be shopping around. They're just going to call you. They'll be like, hey, Mark, I'm ready. Well, and again, I call your customers. That's part of my service. I have to understand what's important to them. How do they buy? What do they buy? What process they use to buy? And then I have your sales process mirror the way buyers want to buy. And less than 3% of buyers are actively searching for a solution right now. Yeah, probably. Talk about a numbers game. However, everybody wants to improve and mitigate risk. 70% of buyers are wired to mitigate risk. 30% are trying to be innovative. So if you really want to talk numbers, how do you mitigate risk? You're going to have conversations if you can share how you mitigate risk. Yeah. And not even it, it, labeling it as risk mitigation is that could also push people away too. Correct. Where it's just having a conversation around what are you going to do so, uh, so that you could drive certainty? What do businesses want? They want revenue and they want certainty behind that revenue. Period. Well, and identify, I mean, again, with your AI background, what trigger events create opportunities, right? Sometimes new purchasing manager. Well, they want to create a new department. They want to become innovative. They want to save 5% of total cost. A trigger event would be a new person in purchasing, right? What other well, trigger events? Well, uh, we don't deal with intent data. Right. Most of the people that we work with, we actually love intent data companies because we could partner with them. They do the when, the what, and the where, right? right. That's what they solve. We solve the who. That's the biggest Perfect. missing piece. So I have a bunch of clients that use intent data before they met us, and they right. were getting marginal, if not no results whatsoever. They're like, this is crap. I'm like, no, it's not crap. It's just misunderstood. When they added our psychographic level data and what we do behind it, they were able to find out which companies were looking. Sure, the accounts, the keywords, everything like that. But then we would identify precisely which person should be the champion within that business. That way you're not just calling on them and to see if they actually do qualify in the first place. They may be looking for it, but who? We do the who. And one of the we do have some behavioral metrics that we use, but really the trigger that's the most important is what is the seniority that they have been in that position for? How long have they been in their position? Right. The system will know, yes, they've been there for a year or less. That's what you want to be targeting. So you can easily search for that and it's good to go. The rest of it has to do with their skills, their interests, their values, um, uh, their aspirations, their geography, uh, talking about uh, what, what their title is, what their background is in, what level of education they have, and so on. So they resonate with the value prop, with your morals, values, 
so on. And then on the other hand, for the firm of graphics, like we take like company revenue, we, we, we just toss that out because company size, it's the same exact thing as the revenue. If you have a company size of 500 people, you're between X and Y revenue, almost right. guaranteed. It doesn't always line up. There's some outliers, but that that is what it is. And so at that point, we're looking at that. The size indicates the pain. The industry indicates the language you should use. Correct. The location indicates what type of business values that they have. And then the years in business indicates their level of expertise and professionalism. That's what we're looking at. The firmographics are not all that important because anybody and their mother could tell you which company is a fit. Whether there even is someone at that company that is a fit for you and to buy from you is a whole different story. Well, and when we've got salespeople spending less than 20% of their sellable time selling, yeah. we need to target them. We've got to stop this shotgun approach. It's not working. I, I, I'm anxious to see what the data is going to be for 2021. But if you follow InsideSales.com, Salespeople who've hit quota has consistently decreased since 2016. I'm hearing they think for the first time it's going to be under 50% of salespeople actually hit their quotas. At what point are we going to finally adjust? That's right. There was recently a study that was out in Silicon Valley about that. I'll share the stats with you later. Right. And uh, if anybody that's listening wants to hear them, I can share them with you. All you have to do is just hit me up, hit me up on LinkedIn or whatever it may be but I could share those stats with you. It's terrifying. I think, so if I have this right, 70% of salespeople are not hitting quota. Wow. And then 70% of AEs are hitting only 80% of their quota. Talk so about frustrating a bunch of CEOs and CFOs with a ROI mindset, right? Yeah, I need to check on those stats though. So anybody listening to that, take that for, for a grain of rice. It's somewhere close to that. I could share it with everybody later. Do not want to put myself on the line for that. And I know I can also cite who did the research too, when the time comes. And again, a lot of the CEOs that I work with grew up through operations and finance. And what they really want and need is sales to run like a plant. Yeah. And my challenge to them is, okay, if your plant wasn't running well, would you just look at product on the dock that's about to ship? Or would you walk through the entire process and make sure everybody's trained and they have the right tools, right systems, well, yeah, that's what I would do. Are you that's doing right. that with sales? Well, and, and that's where I get the strategic pause, right? That's, that's where sales really, enablement comes in. That's that where sales enablement comes in. Nobody knows what it is. And then sales ops, sales operations. Yes. Leading into rev ops, leading, leading into market ops. That's all. Those are all things that are absolutely necessary. And a, a uh, non-hygienic CRM leads to all these problems. You can have the most customer-centric approach in the world. They love you. You're doing great business. Why aren't we growing? It's because you have not oper operationalized the, the back end process and the intelligence behind the whole plan process moving forward. That's one of the biggest gaps. And I preach this to businesses all the time. Do a gap analysis of your CRM. I literally offer that as a service. Do wow. a gap analysis. And it's not based off of reports because if the data is dirty enough or it's not in the right place, you literally cannot build a report in a CRM because mathematically it's impossible because it cannot fit in the graph. Right. It doesn't work. How are you going to tell? You need to see it in a granular way. They don't show any granular ways. It's just all calculations. That doesn't exist in a reporting platform. And again, I, I do an analysis of pipeline when I do a sales assessment of a team. And it shocks me how bad pipelines are today. And a quick question I ask CEOs is, look, are you going into a board meeting? Your sales leader just gave you a forecast. How much do you discount it? 
Yeah, do you believe it? What do you mean? Well, you don't believe it. So how much are you discounting it? 20%, 15%, 30%? Well, you're making me uncomfortable. Yeah, I know. Uh, my whole point is, what if you had something you could count on? Because right now, salespeople are doing what they're being told to do. They're doing what they're compensated to do. If they're compensated to have 50 calls a day, they're having them. You don't know the quality of those calls. No, and a lot of them do that ghost calls, what they call it, where they call and then they just hang up just so to, to show that it was a call. Even if the person picks up, they're just trying to get through the quota. They burn through it and then they just sit there and play video games. So again, I, I think it's a tremendous opportunity. I, I'm not bashing salespeople. I, I am a salesperson, card carrying, right? Same here. Sales 36 years. It's just that it's time for us to adapt. Um, if you were running a plant today, you wouldn't be running it the way you ran a plant in 1930. Unless, of course, it was highly efficient, effective. If I'm not seeing a lot of sales teams that are highly efficient and effective today. They're highly efficient, but it's negligible effectiveness. And how effective are they? And what would it what would having your sales team be effective be worth to your bottom line? And more importantly, how long is it going to take? Those are the questions I help answer for people. The average sales team out there, as far as effectiveness goes, from cold outreach to close is far below 1%. What would it be? What would happen if that far below 1% turned to 5%? Well, you either 20, 10, or at least 5x your, your revenue. Right. Just from having a 5% effectiveness rate, why aren't we becoming effective? That's my question. How, how come, if you ran any other part of the business, compliance, operations, a, a medical staff, anything hr at a, at a less than one percent effectiveness rate you would be in jail right accounting jail oh definitely legal jail, jail. like it, anything at that level of efficiency is complete blasphemy it's, it's nonsense it's it's completely a tr it's insanity meanwhile we say oh yeah you know that's fine it's just sales that's the way it goes just and that's because a lot of CEOs describe sales as like this dark art, like it's it's the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain. You know what I mean? But actually, it's time that they pull the curtain behind and see what's going on. It's time that they look at the data that they would get for their plant. And if they can't get the data, hire somebody to get it for you. Because if you're in business and you survived the pandemic, you have a smart team. They just don't have current data. Because that's right. Current data in front of data, them, ineffective marketing, sales data drives marketing. Marketing Absolutely. feeds sales, but sales need to track the data, track what the responses are. Why do people buy from us? All that stuff is so important because that all feeds the marketing team. The people who effectively buy from uh, uh, from that company, they buy from the sales team. They, the marketing team shouldn't be targeting people who are interested and build a community around that. They should be targeting the people that the salespeople have the ability to sell to and that your business does business with, period. Absolutely. Just because you won't get 10 million impressions, you'll get 20,000 impressions. Would you rather have 10 million impressions and one sale? Or would you rather have 20,000 impressions and have 20 sales? And that's where you have to track the right metric. Right. It's all about marketing is to feed the sales team to increase conversion. It's not about how many eyes are on your shit. And that's why some people say, Mark, I see in your past you were the VP of sales and marketing. I don't think that's a good title. Well, actually, I think it's the best title. Uh, yeah. Marketing should be giving sales the tools to close business.
Marketing and sales should not be in pillars like they are. No, the two silos. Thing, and it's just like Justin Michael talks about, his whole purpose behind GTM, that whole business and hype cycle that he's created recently is to make it so marketing and sales work together as one unit. And that's the way it always should have been. How is marketing supposed to help sales if they don't talk? How is sales supposed to feed help marketing feed them if they're not communicating, if they're not tracking the data, if they're not working together? They have two separate objectives, and those objectives off, often bounce off of each other. And on that note, we're out of time here. I think it was a good place to lead, leave off. But, uh, Mark, I want to say thank you so much for coming here. What's the best place for people to find you if they'd like to talk to you? Well, what's fun is, again, leveraging the Internet. If you, if you Google fix sales problems, I'm number one in the world. Um, but, again, you know, you can always uh, look at my website, um, outbsalessolutions.com, my brand new site. And I'd love to get into conversations. I'm very active on LinkedIn. I love connecting with people on LinkedIn, hearing about the problems that they're struggling with. And then I create programs and training and systems to solve those problems. So really enjoyed our time together today. And make sure and send me the link. I'll share it in my community. Absolutely. So you hear that, everybody. Um, had a great time here. Uh, Mark and I are two of a kind here. Uh, a lot of similar, similar thoughts and processes that we like to, to we like to look at. So it's great, great to see that. But I want to thank everybody for listening. Again, this is DTRH Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Turley. This is brought to you by White Rabbit Intel, where you can know more, win more, and close often with a targeting engine that is pretty much quite incredible, if I'd say so myself. But I may have a little bit of bias on that, right? But thank you so much. Um, if you're going to share or post anything about this, please use hashtag DTRH podcast and tag me because I will always engage and help you get that content that you posted uh, more views, right? It's that's the least I can do. Anyway, thank you so much and have a great night. If you enjoyed this episode, follow Down the Rabbit Hole podcast for new episodes weekly on Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Pandora, and YouTube. If you'd like to apply to be featured on the podcast or recommend a featured guest, please feel free to email us at the team at whiterabbitintel.com.